0: Verse 13, after they had stopped speaking, James answered. Now this James is probably James, Jesus' half-brother. We know it's not James, the brother of John. He was martyred back in Acts chapter 12. So this is either James, son of Alphaeus, the uh, the apostle, or it's James, the brother of Jesus. And the early church fathers around the 2nd century we have writings saying that they believed or they understood that this James was James the brother of Jesus. The same James who wrote the book of James, uh oh. Well the book of James is all about faith without works is dead. It's that works book, you know, it's the Bible works book. James. James says faith without works is dead. You show me your faith and I'll show you my works. My works prove that I have faith. And if you say I have faith but you don't do anything about it, you have no works, your faith is dead. And so people like the Judaizers would take that and say, see, circumcision is required. Prove to me you have faith. Get circumcised. Prove your faith by doing this, that, or the other. Well, that's not ever what James said. In fact, look at it this way. The book of James is two sides of the same coin. Heads being grace... being motivation. What do you mean? I mean grace motivates my works. I want to serve Jesus. I want to do righteous things. I want to change my lifestyle to be more like Him. I want to. I don't do it because it will save me. I do it because I have been saved. And as a saved person, man, that motivates me to change my life. So there is a works aspect to faith. I believe in Jesus. I believe He saved me. And that makes me want to roll up my sleeves and do anything He asks me to do. Okay, so faith and works does go together. But this is that same James. And here stands up James. And he says, brethren, listen to me. And I can almost see Paul going, here goes James. And James said, Simeon, this is Peter, Simeon is Peter's Hebrew name. Simeon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. With this, James reasons, the words of the prophets agree. Just as it is written, after these things I will return, I will rebuild the tabernacle of David which has fallen, I will rebuild its ruins, I will restore it so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from long ago. James says the prophets agree with everything that Peter just said. So you want a weight of evidence, let's go back a bit. It's not just what Peter experienced, what Peter saw in the vision, and what Peter did with Cornelius. It's not just all the things we're hearing about now from Paul and Barnabas. No, we've got to go back further. What did the prophets say? And there are numerous prophecies. There are so many, and I, I ran out of time to, to pull them all in. A number of prophecies, speaking of Israel being the light to the Gentiles. That they were supposed to take the truth of God to the Gentile world. Speaking of the fact that on them, on, on the Gentiles, in a land in darkness, a great light has shined. And talking about the fact that God planned all along, from Adam forward, God had a plan of salvation for everyone, Jew and Gentile alike. And the prophets do agree on this, but the only prophets that James quotes here is an especially profound prophecy. James is quoting from the prophet Amos. He didn't have time to quote Andy, so this is just Amos. Amos chapter 9, verses 11 and 2, and it's an amazing prophecy. Because what he quotes here, these couple of verses, this is Amos foretelling the coming millennial temple. Note that. In fact, look at verse 16. I will rebuild the tabernacle of David which has fallen. Okay, The sukkah of David. The tent of David, you might say. And it's a phrase referring to the temple. I'm going to rebuild the temple of David. The fallen temple of David. And that temple does not refer to the first temple. The temple of Solomon destroyed in 586 B.C. by Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. That's not the temple that Amos was prophesying about. That temple fell, and another one was rebuilt by Zerubbabel, Joshua. Remember Nehemiah and Ezra, they get in on the scene. The second temple. But this Sukkah of David is not the second temple either. He's not referring to that. He's not referring to Herod's massive remodeling of the second temple that took place in the days of Jesus. This prophecy... I will rebuild the tabernacle, the sukkah of David, which has fallen, can only be speaking of the next temple to come. Actually, we might even have to skip that one. What are you talking about, Rick? What time is it? How are we doing? The next temple that will be built in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount is what we would call a tribulation temple. Because the Bible is very clear that Antichrist will set himself up, go into the temple and claim to be God and set himself up as God from the temple in Jerusalem. So a temple's going to be built. A third temple. There was the first temple, temple of Solomon, right? Second temple, the temple of Zerubbabel that Herod remodeled. Both of those were destroyed. The second temple by Rome in AD 70. So those temples are gone and now nothing's left, just the temple mount. And a big golden zit that sits in the middle of (laughs) them. So there on the temple mount, there will be a third temple. There must be a temple for prophecy to be fulfilled that Antichrist will take his place in the temple of God. Second Thessalonians chapter two, look it up there. Paul talks about it. But there will be a millennial temple and Ezekiel describes it Beautifully, In fact, it's, it's breathtaking to go through the last several chapters of the prophet Ezekiel and read about this temple. Unlike any temple that has ever been built in Jerusalem, it's huge. And a river of living water flows out from, from next to the entrance of the temple and becomes a massive river. And, and I, I don't have time for it. I wish I did. But the temple spoken of here can only be the millennial temple. Why? One word. Gentiles. Gentiles. Gentiles will seek the Lord here. Verse 17. All the Gentiles who are called by my name. The rest of mankind and all the Gentiles. They get to come to this temple. That's never happened before. Gentiles are not allowed to go into the Jewish temple. They can go into the court of the Gentiles, but they cannot pass on into the further courts. But in this temple, the Gentiles, the word there for mankind, anthropoi. Anthropos, the plural of anthropos. And the word for Gentiles, ethnos. Every ethnicity, every ethnic group, all of mankind invited welcome to this temple. The rebuilt Sukkah of David, the rebuilt temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, an actual, factual, rebuilt structure, and it is for everyone. Hmm. Amos, Amos prophesied this 732 years before Jesus came on the scene. So now we're what, 770, 780 years later? James picks up the prophecy and says, Oh, this temple is for Gentiles. And when I think about that, and I think about our inclusion, and I think about the fact that God had planned this from the beginning, I hear Peter say, You're a chosen race. First Peter 2.9 You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you might proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. Well, couldn't he be talking about Israel there? Nope. Because the next thing he says is, for you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You once had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. I grew up in Southern California. I didn't have a people. I had a melting pot. You know, the longest... Any, ancient to me was anything over 10 years old. That impressed me. As a kid growing up, you know, we would see, we would see the missions. So you'd have the missions in California, several up and down the coast. You know, 180, 200 years, maybe 300 years. Big whoop. I remember going back to Virginia, back to the, to Washington DC and looking at the monuments and seeing these ancient structures. And man, it was nothing until I went to Israel. You want to talk ancient? How about the Canaanite arch that's 4,000 years old? that we believe Abraham walked through. It's things like that you get to see when you go to Israel. Ancient, ancient structures. Why am I talking about Oh yeah, well I was born in Southern California and as a kid growing up, I didn't have a people. I think I learned, maybe by about junior high, that I had Scottish background, so I tried the Scottish accent for a while, didn't work out for me. (laughs) I'm like, who's my people? And then I learned, I once was not a people, but now I am part of the people of God. And I've been grafted into Israel, so I'm learning Hebrew. I mean, you know, it's, (laughs) it's remarkable that God has taken what we were not and made us into something we could not have been. The people of God. And He is promising that this temple is going to be built. But watch this one more thing in this prophecy, and I wish we had more time just to look at the prophecy alone. But in verse 16... The prophecy begins after these things. In the Greek, metatauta. Which is one of my favorite phrases in the book of Revelation. Metatauta. After these things. After what things? Well, he says, after these things, I will return. Okay, again, after what things? James puts Amos into context for us. After God has taken from among the Gentiles a people for His name. After... After the times of the Gentiles, this fallen sukkah of David is going to be rebuilt. The times of the Gentiles? Let's be clear. Romans 11.25, Paul says, I don't want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened in Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. The fullness of the Gentiles? Yeah, the, the church age. The times of the Gentiles. And Jesus described the times of the Gentiles this way. He said, Luke twenty-one, twenty-four, They will fall, speaking of Israel, by the edge of the sword. And will be led captive into all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So let me ask you a question. What's going on in Jerusalem this week? This week. The city is being trampled underfoot, gang, by Gentiles. Walls are being erected in East Jerusalem to stop some of the terrorist activity that's going on. Knives are out. And Hamas is calling for a third intifada against the city of Jerusalem. And you guys planning on going to Israel this year are going, Oh, that's fantastic! <laughs> Don't worry. It's like this every time we go. Some of you know this. The very first time Cheryl and I went on a little pastor fam tour, Three days after we got there, there was a suicide bombing in Tel Aviv and the whole third church thought I was gone. Rich dead. And having a little party and everything. I was really upset. <laughs> and we were fine and you will be fine. We're not going to go somewhere foolish. But what I'm saying is this. Right now, Hamas is calling for more violence. The Palestinians, and by the way, I really hate that the news is trying to give some kind of moral equivalency to what's going on, you know. Well, the Jews need to do... The Israel needs to do its part to to stop this, to quell this violence. Well, how many Jews are drawing knives on Palestinians? You don't see that taking place. And by the way, when it does, they are prosecuted to the full extent of Israeli law. If a Jew were to murder a Palestinian, they would either go to prison or have the death penalty. According to Jewish Israeli law. There's no moral equivalency going on here. Rick's opinion. But I'm right. <laughs> Jesus says this. He says, After these things, after these times of the Gentiles, I will rebuild the temple. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Who said it? Who said I will re- rebuild the temple? The Lord. But Amos is talking about the 732 years before Jesus... I will rebuild the temple. Listen, Jesus is the one who's going to rebuild the temple. He's the one who returns after the times of the Gentiles with His saints. Who, by the way, are raptured seven years at least prior to the end of the times of the Gentiles. You know that? The church will be caught up and the times of the Gentiles will continue through the tribulation. And after that... Jesus returns with the saints to the earth. He rebuilds the fallen tabernacle of David, the temple in Jerusalem, and He sets up His kingdom on earth. Where do you get that, Rick? Zechariah chapter 6, verse 12. Behold, a man whose name is Branch, for he will branch out from where he is, and he will rebuild the temple of the Lord. It is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he will bear the honor, and sit and rule on his throne, and he will be a priest on his throne... Jesus is our great high priest. And he will also be on the throne, which means he's a ruler on the throne. He's a priest and a king. And the council of peace will be between the two offices of priest and king. Jesus is going to rebuild this temple. And if you want to see where he's going to rebuild this temple, come with us to Israel in April. James is appealing to this great prophecy of the coming kingdom, but note this, he is appealing to the coming kingdom for the sake of the Gentiles. Isn't that marvelous? He goes back to take us forward to explain what's going on right here in Acts chapter 15. Well, verse 19. Therefore, James says, it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles. We don't trouble them. Why are there those people in the church, unfortunately, who feel it's our obligation to straighten people out before they come to faith in the Lord? Get cleaned up and then maybe I'll talk to you about Jesus. I mean, come on. It's been said our job is not to clean fish. Our job is to catch them. God will clean them. Jesus will clean them by his blood through the washing of water with the word. The cleansing part is up to the Lord. Our part is just catching. Throwing out the reel. Or the line. Don't throw out the reel, because then you know it goes into the water, you don't get it out. You know what I'm saying? Why? He says, let's not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles. We don't need to make this more difficult for them. God didn't make it more difficult. Did He? No, in fact, He made it far easier. Don't be troubled if someone's life is a little messy. Just tell them about Jesus. Verse 20. But, He says, that we write to them, let's not trouble them, but let's write to them, that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood and so he says three things here to avoid let's at least give them some some insight let's give them some instruction on what they ought to avoid they don't have to do the circumcision thing and a shout of joy was heard across the land but but there are some things to avoid here three things number one contamination number two fornication and number three strangulation Contamination, fornication, strangulation, contamination. He's talking about anything that's been contaminated by idolatry. Tell them to avoid things contaminated by idols. And I find that really interesting. He doesn't say they need to avoid idolatry. He says they need to avoid things contaminated by idols. Well, what does that mean? They knew what was going on in culture. They knew how much idol worship was taking place. James's admonition here is that they get far enough away that they're not even polluted by it, that they're not influenced by it, that have they have nothing to do with idolatry. He's talking about a cultural revolution, and following Jesus should do that to us. Should do what? should make us want to pull back from anything that might pollute us spiritually. To back away from things in our culture, because, gang, idolatry was the culture of the Gentiles. Pagan idolatry was rampant. In fact, all three of these things that he says, all are related to paganism, heathenism, and idolatry. He says, pull back, man. Don't get polluted by that stuff. Following Jesus should change our culture. And I'm not just saying that we should change the culture around us, but the very culture that I accept ought to be different for me as a follower of Jesus. As Paul said, Romans 12.2, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So, contamination. Secondly, fornication. Fornication is the Greek word pornea, where we get the word pornography. It has to do with sexual immorality, which was absolutely widespread in the pagan world. Same as today. In fact, I think we could very easily say that American culture, that sexual immorality in American culture is as widespread as it was in the pagan world. We've come so far. The early church had to learn to leave sexual immorality behind. Ironically, the latter church of today needs to learn to leave sexual immorality behind. It is unbelievable to me how rampant it is in the church. Sexual immorality, and it's just, it's a, it's a, a, a I was going to say it's a blanket word, but I didn't think that'd be appropriate. It's a jet. Ge- Some of you got that. Others are going to go, a blanket word. It's a general word that embraces, listen, all sexually inappropriate things outside of the biblical mandate for marriage between a man and a woman. Anything outside of that's living together, sexual immorality. That's sex before marriage, sexual immorality. That's adultery, sexual immorality. It is all cornea. And the word captures all of that, any, again, sexual behavior outside of God's divine design for a marriage of one man to one woman as defined by scripture. And I hate that I have to be so clear about this. You know, I really do. I hate that I have to say one man to one woman. But that's how far the sexual immorality in our culture has gone. I have to be specific. Genesis chapter 1 verse 27 says God created man in his own image and the image of God he created him male and female he created them God blessed them, and God said to them the male and the female be fruitful and multiply which is a command that can only be followed by a man and a woman only a man and a woman can be fruitful and multiply right? And then he gives this explanation in Genesis 2.24, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Because where there is a sexual union of a man and a woman, they become one flesh. And that's, again, this is, this is God's design from the earliest days of creation. And then Jesus comes along, some 4,000 years after creation, Jesus says, Matthew 19, verse 4, Have you not read that He who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore, Jesus said, what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Now that's that's God's standard. And I know, I, I know even among us tonight, and without pointing fingers and without actually having literal knowledge, I know that there's got to be baggage. And I know there's got to be divorce in some past and, some, and adultery in some past and, and premarital sex in some past. I, I get that. Praise God that He offers grace. Amen. Because it is by His grace that you are saved, not by your works. And in any given situation, no matter how filthy my life has been, and by the way, my life has been more filthy than probably you know. No matter how filthy my life has been, I have come to the Lord. I have been born again. And His grace is sufficient even for a sinner like me. So be comforted. Don't sit there squirming if you feel like, oh, he's going on and on about this fornication issue. Look, we've got to call it what it is because in the church today, it must stop. It's got to stop. James told the early Gentile believers, stop it. And here we are 2,000 years later and we still haven't figured out that we're supposed to be sexually pure. Contamination, fornication, and finally strangulation... Which has to do with blood. In fact, he says both. To, uh, that they should abstain from what is strangled and from blood. So I put those two together. Because this came from the pagan practice of smothering, of strangling animals for sacrifice. And afterwards, they would carve out the best of the meat. And they would sell it in the pagan meat markets. And all of the Gentiles throughout the Gentile world, they knew, You want a good prime rib of beef? You want some good flank steak? You want some good ribs? You just want some tasty hamburger? You go to the pagan meat market because it's good meat. Oh yeah, it was meat that was sacrificed to idols. But when they're done with the sacrifice, they just get it all and sell it out there in the market. The markets were called shambles. That's where they were called the shambles. You go to the shambles to buy your meat. Prime, rare, bloody steak. And James says, Tell him to abstain from that. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 19, Paul said, and we read this on Sunday, what do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? He says, but that the things which Gentiles sacrifice, no, they sacrifice to demons and not to God, and I don't want you to become sharers in demons. So Paul says, look, the meat's not the issue. Because I, I, I have freedom. I have freedom and grace. Paul says, I can eat meat that was bought in the shambles. It's not a problem. I cook it well. I like my meat well done, but I can eat meat. That's not the issue. The issue is just the idolatry that's connected. And it's best not to have anything to do with that. How rare do you like your steak? Do you like it with blood on the plate? See, Cheryl can't even do it. Cheryl, for Cheryl, it's got to be like beef jerky. It's got to be so cooked, you know. It's this rock hard little thing, and you can hear her sawing through her steak. <laughs> you know, she's going. She can't do it. She sees blood on the plate. She's done. It just grosses her out. So should we Christians perhaps go vegan? Would that be the answer? Again, steak was not the problem. Blood was the problem. The fact that it was offered to pagan idols and that it was idolatry, well that's an issue too, but even Paul says, that you know, I'm not so concerned about that, because that's not going to condemn you, unless you're with a brother who, who it upsets, then don't do it, but otherwise that's not the problem, but blood, that's a problem, blood is a problem, why? Because God made a pre-law covenant with humanity. That is, before the Mosaic Law, which was a law, a covenant given to the Jewish people, God made a covenant with us. All humanity. Let me just read you part of it. Genesis 9, verse 3. Immediately following the flood. The Noahic Covenant. God said, Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give it all to you as I gave the green plant. Which means, yes... There's a place for all God, God's creatures right next to the mashed potatoes and gravy. You can eat, God said right there to Noah and everyone after that, you can you can, as he said to Peter, rise, kill, and eat. You can hunt for your food. You can eat meat. I'm giving you that permission. God says it's to all humanity. And then he says, Only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. This is not a conditional covenant. This is not like the Mosaic Covenant, which was simply for a people. This is a covenant God made with all mankind where He said, look, I want you to enjoy a good steak. Have a hamburger on me, not a problem. Just don't eat the blood. Don't drink the blood. Did you see the article recently? Man, a vampire rave. This is one of the new things that's going on in our culture. People who are pretending to be vampires going to these rave dances and and having the electronica music and the the wild lights and everything and drinking blood and pouring blood on themselves. It's just sick. Blood is a big deal to God. Leviticus 17.11, he says, the life of, of flesh is in the blood. I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls for it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement and for Israel he was painting a picture of what his son would do and that is pour out every last drop of his blood and so God all the way back to Noah said let's not do the blood thing let's not be drinkers of blood and eaters of blood because there's something there's something very very holy in life God is all about life And blood is the symbol of life. You take away away the blood, there is no life. He's serious about that. But you can eat steak. You can have a good burger. That's alright. And those who would argue the point, I would say, (laughs) Paul warns Timothy this. He said in the last days, that there would be some who fall away from the faith, who call for, quote, First Timothy 4, verse 3. Who call for abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. So going off and saying you can't eat this, that, or the other is not the answer either. But blood, blood's an issue. Now, back to the, to the text here. While the Gentile brothers were cheering the news that circumcision didn't make the cut... They, they still may have wondered why these three things, why are these specifically called out? And one I've already addressed, so that they would be set apart from culture. Right? So they'd be set apart from the rest of the pagan Gentile world. They would look different if they did just these three things. But there's another reason, and it's the next verse. Verse 21. For Moses from ancient generations has in every city those who preach him since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Okay, James, what does that have to do with telling them to abstain from these things? It's not only that they be set apart from the Gentiles, it's that they be sensitive to the Jews. And that was important to James. He's recognizing that Jesus was a Jew that Christian faith began with the Jews that it is and was the fulfillment of all Jewish prophecy coming to bear in Messiah Jesus Christ and so he says look they need to do these things it will set them apart but also there are synagogues in every one of these cities where now we have church fellowships and I don't want our church fellowships offending our Jewish brethren lest they might not come to faith in Jesus I think that's beautiful sensitivity they do not want to slam the door shut on the feet of their Jewish brothers throughout the world and by the way neither should we we should love Israel we should have an affection for the Jewish people why? because God does we should choose to befriend Israel stand with Israel politically that's a big deal for me when I look at candidates and we talked recently about the candidates and what they believe one of the first things I want to know is what are they going to do with Israel? Because if they're going to stand opposed to Israel, this country's in a world of hurt. Paul dealt with the same situation with the Corinthian church. He said in 1 Corinthians 10.23, All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own, but that of his neighbor. So the things that we do, we do to be set apart in our culture, but also sensitive Two people in our culture that they might come to the Lord as well. So verse 22, continuing on, then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. And they sent this letter with them. So they send this group. These are going to be the first newsboys. News and they're going to go back up with this news to the church in Antioch. And look at the four guys, Paul and Barnabas. They're known and trusted in Antioch, so of course you want to send them with the news with this letter that's about to be sent. But they also send Judas Barsabbas. Judas Barsabbas, whose name is Judas, son of Shabbat. Son of the Sabbath. So this is a good Jewish boy. And this Jewish man, Judas, son of the Sabbath, this is a good representative to show that the Jerusalem crowd was on board now with the Gentiles. So we send Paul, Barnabas, a really good Jew, and... Silas, or some of your translations may say Sylvanus. That's his Greek name. Silas or (laughs) Sylvanus. His name means Woody. I kid you not. I kid you not. Woody. So on the second missionary journey, Buzz and Woody are going to take the word. (laughs) Amazing. Verse 23, quickly. The apostles, here's the letter. I'm just going to read the letter to you. The apostles and the brethren who are elders to the brethren in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, which is also Galatia, who are from the Gentiles, greetings. Since we have heard that some of our number... To whom we gave no instruction have disturbed you with their words unsettling your souls. It seemed good to us. Having become of one mind, and I have that underlined in my Bible, become of one mind. Some of your translations may say one accord. I think that's the best way for a church to move forward. What we would call the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. The unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. That's what we seek for in our shepherding meetings. That's what we need to seek as a church, that we be unified. It seemed good to us, having become of one mind, to select men to send to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, we have sent Judas and Woody, who themselves would also report to you the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials. So thankfully we recognize the Spirit is involved in this decision. We still haven't seen Him pray. But thankfully the Spirit's working. It seemed good to us, to the Holy Spirit, to lay no greater burden than these essentials. Verse 29. That you, and here's the list, abstain from the things sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from things strangled, and from fornication. If you keep yourselves free from such things, you will do well. Farewell. And that's the first letter that will be circulated among the churches around 49 to 50 A.D. This is only 20, 30 years roughly after the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. And a letter of grace makes the rounds. I remind you again, the Gospel. The Gospel is freedom. Freedom. The Gospel is grace. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. And they're playing it out. They're following Jesus in this very decision. We're not going to place a burden on their shoulders. We're not going to place a heavy weight on them that they have to do all this legalistic stuff. No, we're just going to tell them, look, abstain from some of this stuff. You're going to do great. It's a letter of grace. Verse 30. So, when they were sent away, they went down to Antioch. And having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. I just love that. They rejoiced. Judas and Silas also being prophets themselves encouraged and strengthened the brethren. And I have this underlined with a lengthy message. (laughs) Right on, guys. Okay, now we're talking. On Sunday morning, uh, a sister sent a message to me via Les and Donna. They were waiting around up here and I finished talking to someone. I came over and and they said, so-and-so wanted us to tell you this. Um to stop apologizing for long sermons or for going long. And she said this, she said, we're here because we're hungry. Man, I can't even tell you how much that blessed me on Sunday morning. Not the freedom to go long. And I did tell Les and Donna, tell her it's like she just poured gasoline on a flame. (laughs) But you know what? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And that's God's intention, not mine. It's His intention. Lengthy messages and all. Verse 33. (laughs) And after they had spent time there, they were sent away from the brethren in peace to those who had sent them out, but it seemed good to Silas to remain there. But Paul and Barnabas, they stayed in Antioch, teaching and preaching with many others also the word of the Lord. Silas stayed. Why did Silas stay? He wanted to be where the action was. And in that moment, at that time, the action was spreading out into the Gentile world. And as we will see, it's Silas who's going to go with Paul on the second missionary journey. Buzz and Woody, Paul and Silas will be off soon on the second journey of Paul. What about Barnabas? Well, we'll talk about that a week from Sunday. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word tonight. Thank You for, Lord, the way You work in Your people. Forgive us, Father, when we spend more time in debate than devotion. When we spend more time arguing than praying. Lord, I pray, first of all, Lord, thank you for my fellow brothers who are more intent on prayer and the ministry of the Word than anything else. I have not known a group of shepherds like this group, and I'm so thankful. And I'm so thankful, Lord, for a fellowship who is hungry for your Word, hungry for righteousness, hungry for the truth. And so I pray, Father, that long after I shut up and stop talking, I pray Your Spirit would keep talking into the night. Mm -hmm. Would keep filling our spirits with truth and with joy. Even as we think about these things and consider what we've heard tonight, we thank You for Your grace. Your grace is just magnificent, Lord. Mm -hmm. Beyond comprehension, beyond understanding, beyond explanation, that You would love us so much That You would not require anything of us but that we believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. With that, Father, I I ask one more thing. That in our faith, in our belief in Your grace, we would have lives that are changed. We would be distinct from culture. We would remove ourselves from, from the contaminants of sin. And we wouldn't be those who just accept things the way they are and just say, ah, whatever. Father, that we would not trample on the grace that's been given us. But rather, we would live lives of holiness and righteousness and joy in the Holy Spirit. Father, bless this fellowship now as we go out from this place. We love You, Lord. We praise the name of Jesus and it's in Jesus' name we pray tonight. Amen.